0: In this episode of The Bell Tale, King Rat, the rise of LVF leader and Loyalist icon, Billy Wright.
2: Your Britishness Never. shall become unrecognisable. All my life I've heard people say, I'll be there when the day comes. Well, folks, the days have come. Hopefully you be a- yeah
1: take a look back through our history and you look at the increase in the killings that happened around Ulster at that time, he became a very active and very ruthless UVF leader.
0: Thousands of people were killed in the Troubles, their lives taken by hundreds of paramilitaries. The names of those gunmen are unknown or forgotten, but Billy Wright's name lives on in infamy. To nationalists, Billy Wright was a bogeyman, guilty of conspiring in or actually committing some of the most callous sectarian murders of recent times. To hardline loyalists, though, he was a true son of Ulster.
1: It is well known that Billy Wright was involved in numerous murders. Billy Wright was a feared loyalist killer. Now i would going to say I'm to
2: say he was a leader. More a hero to people.
0: With me to discuss a notorious loyalist leader is the Belfast Telegraph security correspondent, Alison Morris. Alison, I have been discussing Billy Wright with various people, even journalists, and everyone knows who he is, but many of the details and exactly what he was, they're not sure about. So could you remind us just who was Billy Wright?
1: Yeah, and I think over time it's became, you know, some of it is wrapped up in urban legends, some of it's wrapped up just in propaganda and, you know, other parts of, of his story have been told by so many people and they're conflicting. So, you know, it's who is... Um, Billy Wright was actually he was born in Wolverhampton, England. His parents had left Northern Ireland, and they had went to Wolverhampton. It was to do with a, a sort of issue over um, politics, which actually moved them out of Northern Ireland. He was born in July 1960, but when he was just four, they returned back to Portadown, and within a couple of years, their marriage had broke up, and he and his four sisters um, were then placed in the car So he spent a lot of his childhood in and out of car, According to Martin Dillon in his book The Trigger Man and some people have sort of disputed some of the facts in that book but in, according to that he was very brutalised during his time in Carr um, and that I suppose could go some way to explaining but in no way excusing what he was to to later become. By the time he was 15 he joined the, the YCV which would be the youth wing of the UVF um, and within two years was arrested for hijacking a vehicle in possession of weapons. Um, he served some time in prison, and then when he was released in 1980, he was charged with murder on the evidence of the loyalist Supergrass, Clifford Mc- McKeown.
2: The first killing said to have been carried out by Billy Wright was that of a young Catholic shot in the Lurgan Portadown area in 1981.
1: Wright was named as the killer, but a murder charge against him was dropped. He was held for some time on remand in Crumlin Road Prison, but then released when, when McCune retracted his evidence. But this is an important time in the story of Billy Wright, and the reason why it's an important time is during that time in prison he began studying the Bible and became Quite a sort of sort of obsessed, I suppose, with the teachings in the Bible and how that related to his own loyalism. And this is an important detail, is because this would also shape his later activities. When he was released from prison after the um supergrass trial broke down, having seen the light, he moved away from paramilitarism completely for a time and became a lay preacher. He joined the Free Presbyterian Church. He also attempted to move to, to Scotland but was arrested and given an exclusion order ban him from Britain and returned to Northern Ireland. He may well have stayed a preacher and stayed out of politics and paramilitarism completely, but, you know, those old enough will remember the loyalist outrage at the sign of the Anglo-Irish Agreement and that was when Billy Wright was brought back in to that sort of loyalist paramilitary world. I
2: embraced Christian Holloway. I, I studied on it. I believed it, and still do, and <clears throat> I enjoyed it for three and a half years, basically, until the Anglo-Irish agreement happened. I was across in Scotland for a couple of months and was arrested then by Scotland Yard. I was detained for approximately eight days and was excluded then from England, Scotland and Wales for life. I came back to Northern Ireland and immediately continued the that service.
1: Remember, at this time, he was a very dedicated member of the Free Presbyterian Church. The Anglo-Irish Agreement caused outrage among Unionists who believed that it was, you know, a stepping stone to United Ireland. They became very angry at Margaret Thatcher's government, who they felt had betrayed them. It brought hundreds of thousands onto the streets. And it also spawned that Paisley's never, 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 never... It's spawned that speech. He was a disciple of Paisley, so you can see how he was going to be influenced by that. And at this point in time, he believed that the UVF was the only organisation that had the moral right to defend the Protestant people and that he was doing God's will. So he had then justified what he was doing in terms of almost, he had almost justified it in terms of some kind of holy war. You know, and, and took it back to sort of biblical senses. He he did believe, whereas, you know, we have different views of the war here. He believed it was a religious war, it was a righteous war. Um, and that, I think, was part of the sort of shaping of, of the person he would become. I have preached
2: in the south of Ireland. I have preached in Cork. I have done all of that. I have a love, and still have a love, for the Roman Catholic people. I detest Roman Catholicism because I believe that ultimately, it will lead to the loss of countless millions of souls. I believe
0: also that it removes from the daily of Christ and attacks his glorification. For people listening now, um, loyalism, at least to my mind, isn't overtly connected to preaching and religion. Was that unusual at the time, Alison, or was this religious fervour and the connection of the loyalist cause abnormal, or was it the...
1: We we may not know because we look at how paramilitarism has as I suppose transformed and now we have this sort of gangster style paramilitarism that exists after the Good Friday Agreement. But yeah, I do think if you went right back I mean if you go right back to what caused the troubles, there was, you know, the civil rights movement was based on discrimination, which was mainly not, not exclusively, but mainly aimed at one section of the population. It was mainly um, aimed at the, the sort of Catholic nationalist part of the population. You have, you know, people like Lord Brookborough saying, you know, he wouldn't have, you know, a Catholic about the, about the place. And so a lot of that would have been based in sort of religious discrimination. With Billy Wright, it wasn't so much the discrimination as that he felt, almost, if it, I suppose, if you could put it in line, that this was their land, you know, that God had chosen him to live here and that this was the land of the Ulster Protestant people. Um, and that, I th- you know, in some terms, I think that there's nobody more dangerous. And we see this now with the problems that exist globally than someone who believes that they have religious justification for what they are doing you know, and, and that becomes, I think, which made him so deadly and so dedicated
2: Well they can't sit idly by and allow their people to be murdered and allow political leverage to be gained from violence It is not of their choice and they certainly do not it. but nevertheless they're duty bound to protect their people and their country Even if it means more deaths of innocent people? Even if it means their deaths
0: I think I think another thing that strikes me about it, about the Billy Wright story, and something which I think has perhaps been forgotten, is that today when we think maybe about paramilitaries, we think maybe about Belfast, we think about Derry, etc. But poured it down with this cauldron where different strands of, you know, of what of, of you describe this blood link to the land coming up through Armagh, the history of the defenderism and the Orange Order in Armagh, it's where religious, there was a religious fervor and it, it, there's obviously poverty and crime and estates. It seemed to have all of these, it seemed to be the cauldron, the centre of the Troubles. Which is probably not the case now. was that a huge factor? What sort of environment was that?
1: I think that there's a number of things. So when, when Billy Wright took over, he succeeded Robin Jackson, who was, you know, known as the Jackal as the, the, the leading figure in the Mid Ulster UVF. Um that would be in the late eighties and early nineties. And you know, if you take a look back through our history and you look at the the, the increase in the killings that happened around Mid Ulster at that time, he became a very active and very ruthless UVF leader and a lot of that was to do with the fact that these were you know very very divided communities We live in a very rural area mainly um, and therefore you know and people were were very isolated and a lot of it what he changed it was rather than targeting specifically members of the IRA or people they perceived as Republicans we would later see this happen with places things like Shankill Road's C Company but what he had done was he would terrorise the entire Nationalist population. His way of winning the war was, you know, what they called at that time. Well, we'll terrorise the terrorists, and if we can't terrorise them, then we'll terrorise their families. And so, a lot of the killings that were carried out by the Middle Street UVF at that time weren't specifically targeted killings where somebody was targeted for murder. They were very random attacks, and um, there were random sectarian attacks in places where they knew that the people who would be there would-be Catholic. Um, It's around this time that he got the name King Rat that was bestowed on him by the the Sunday World and by Sunday World journalists. And, you know, it's been reported that he initially didn't like that name, but then realised that he could use that to generate fear. And then his unit of the UVA became known as the Rat Pack. And so he used to his benefit something that he initially didn't like. I mean, if you look at some of the attacks that happened at that time, the the attack on Boyles Bar and Kappa, those sort of attacks, then he would go forward and, and sort of say that these were a sign of the success. He would claim that his mid Union had put the, the sort of East Tyrone Brigade of the IRA on the run. He would often say that they had decimated him and the IRA did try to kill him on a number of occasions. There was bombs placed under his car. But... They were using the guns that had been smuggled from South Africa. The Ombudsman has done several reports into how those guns made their way here. And so heavily armed and heavily motivated and also, you know, being led by this man who believed that he had a God-given right to take the lives of of others. At this point in time, in his time during the UVF, he was linked to the sectarian killings of up to 20 Catholics, although specifically he wouldn't have been carrying out those murders himself as and he wouldn't have been pulling the trigger himself. He had a very experienced gunman and a hitman, someone else, who has remains to this day alive. He has also claimed to have seen the light and seen God um, and, you know, whether he will ever come forward and confess his sins as part of his religious conversion, we don't know. Right now he hasn't. All
2: my life i people say
1: This is something I have found throughout my time as a security journalist. People, it's wrong for the media to betray these people, you know, as monsters or somewhere otherly worldly because it, it does away with the fact that the reason why people like Billy Wright are able to command men and get them to follow them is because they genuinely are. They have a, a charisma about them. They have something that will make people trust them and come along with them. If they were just savage monsters to everyone, well then they wouldn't have had that dedicated, loyal following. Um, he, he looked different, I suppose, from other loyalist paramilitaries as well. You know, if you think about the sort of Johnny Adair with a, the jeans and the t-shirt too small and the muscles Billy, right, most of the, the images that exist of him, he'll have a suit, at times he'll have a Bible in his hand. You know, he tried to portray himself, I think, in a different way, but screwed below the surface. And yeah, and this was, you know, a murderous gang which was funded through extortion and, and racketeering.
0: And the victims, we mentioned he's connected to at least 20 murders. I mean, some of those deaths and we've mentioned they were entirely innocent civilians. Could we talk about some of those people? I mean, I think some the of them were the very young as well.
1: The most prominent, to you, but you have to remember, about 1994, the Combined Loyalist Military Command called a ceasefire. So the UVF was supposed to be on ceasefire. But then John Cree happened, and Billy Wright was a massive figure in those John Cree protests. He could often be seen direct in operations, if you like, in the middle of those riots that existed around the Orange Orders bid to, to march down. Um, through what was a, a Catholic area ported down in the Caravaghi Road at this stage you know because the UVF was on ceasefire he was meant to be on ceasefire but he continued to carry out attacks that Middle unit continued to carry out sectarian attacks and I suppose probably the most high profile one of those would be the murder of taxi driver Michael McGoldrick um, That was, I think, when he started running into difficulties with the rest of the UVF leadership. He initially gave tentative support to what the UVF were doing in terms of the negotiations, but quickly turned away from that. He believed it was a a sellout to um, the IRA and to Republicans in general. He continued, obviously, to cause them problems because at this stage the UVF were in negotiations with the British government and they were trying to distance themselves from the activities of the UVF in Mid-Ulster and he was later expelled and threatened with execution if he didn't leave Northern Ireland and that is when we see the formation of the LVF, the Loyalist Volunteer Force, which we most associate Billy Wright with. So he refused to leave um, after he was told to be executed if he didn't leave Northern Ireland. He is famously quoted as saying, I've been prepared to die for many a year. I don't wish to die but at the end of the day no one forces their opinions down my throat and so he stayed. So for breaking the, the ceasefire and the alleged theft of weapons he had taken UVF arm stumps and held on to them. He was summoned to the, the sort of headquarters of the UVF in the Shankill Road and refused to attend and continued to, to defy those those threats and when he left to form the, the LVF he took most of that UVF unit with him and they went on then a killing rampage it can only be said and the LVF killed at least 14 people during that time all of them in random sectarian attacks none of these were like targeted RA men these were all random sectarian shootings
0: and there was a notorious attack on a mobile shop in in Lurgan
1: yeah, and that that shows you the ruthless nature of it because there was a you know a teenage girl who was killed in, in that attack. Um, and the weapons that were used were easily traceable back to the UVF because they had been weapons that had been taken, you know, in the, the like of the McGoldrick murder. That weapon had ballistics history and the Kappa murders. You know, those weapons all had ballistics history. The, the problem was that, you know, at that stage we remember David Irvine who was leader of the PUP and he was a, a voice for peace. He was of the, the opinion that Wright had ordered the killings to try and incriminate the UVF and try and collapse the peace process. And that's why they felt that they had killed um, Michael McGoldrick. But, you know, other stories then emerged later. You know, some people said that, uh, that Michael McGoldrick was murdered as a birthday present to, to Billy Wright, you know. And, and I think that at that stage, if you look at the, the sort of nature of those killings, they were, were coming increasingly out of control. Um, and they were, you know, the biggest threat to peace and they had morphed into this gang that appeared to be untouchable in terms of how the security forces were clamping down on them but also the fact that they had this leader who refused to bow down not just to, you know, the fact that, the, the, that Northern Ireland was moving on and people were trying to secure peace but even to the own le- leadership within the UVF. And yet when
0: he when he received a threat from his own former organisation he was able to instantly take hundreds and hundreds of people out onto the streets of Portadown. That's perhaps the difference b- between Billy Wright and someone like Johnny Adair. He clearly, he, as you mentioned, charisma, leadership, qualities, but clearly there was a lot of respect.
1: Especially in Portadown. So he became almost like a cult-like figure in Portadown. And if you look back at there's footage of that exact incident that you mentioned of, you know, bringing those people out onto the street and I actually watched it. <laughs> And what struck me was that it wasn't other men who, and young men who maybe clearly were linked to paramilitaries or aspired to or looked up to paramilitaries there was little old ladies rushing out to shake his hand you know there was children and there was almost hero worship of this man who was leading this paramilitary group and murdering you know murdering people in random sectarian attacks he did bring people along with him and I, you know I do think there's an interesting case study into people like that because if you look back at you know those those people maybe on a more global scale who have caused hundreds of thousands of deaths they all have to have something about them that encourages people to follow them and was that sort of religious element to Billy Wright's character. Was that what made those elderly people and people follow along with him when he was clearly taking a, a path that was detrimental to the, the future of the place that they lived for all our futures at that stage?
0: Well, it's interesting, in researching this podcast, I came across sentiments Imported down again and again and again. And that is to say that people said, I don't condone what Billy Wright did, but I have a lot of respect for Billy Wright. You know, there was this, people seemed to have been in awe of Billy Wright, and perhaps some people still are. And perhaps we mentioned that the vast majority of his victims were innocent civilians. However, he intended to strike fear, he did strike fear. There's no doubt about it that the Catholic community, wide and far from Portadown, uh, were afraid of King Rat and the UVF and bars were fortified in places it, which they never were during the Troubles, for example. And he, he did kill Republicans.
1: Bars were, were as you said, bars were fortified, people stopped socializing outside of the home homes were fortified. Um and yeah, and there were there were Republicans killed. Although in most of those cases there were random sectarian attacks and the person who was killed just happened to then be claimed at a later date by the IRA. You know, he knew that there was gonna be that was maybe a place that was frequented by Republicans or Catholics, but the intention was was always indiscriminate and if we did kill someone who turned out to be yeah, the right, IRA then great if not we'll just say that maybe they were anyway after the after the fact um, and it did put it, it did put fear in people and you know and I, I lived through those times I remember you know in the early days of, of my journalism going to speak to you know the father of one of his victims and he took me to the graveyard where his son was buried and it was in a, a very rural place just outside of outside of uh, Portadown and he was able to show me multiple graves there were people who were killed by a belly unit of the UVF of the LVF and for such a small community that must have been terrifying because you know I came from Belfast we had a lot of murders and sectarian murders but you had a large population as well you know to have such a small population to be living under that that kind of fear must have been absolutely terrifying and I suppose it's why the, the sort of You know, the the image of Billy Wright either, you know, in terms if you look back at this sort of very, very, very ruthless paramilitary leader, or for some, and I I think that this is the worry in fact, because we're at a period now where young people are in danger of being radicalised, where he can be held up as some sort of cult figure and some sort of iconic figure to young people he didn't have to live through those terrible times. I think that his demise is maybe a moral tale as well, that, you know, that if we're telling the story of Billy Wright, how he came to meet his end is probably as important as, as, you know, what he did during his life.
0: Which we'll get to, of course. Uh, One of the things that interests me, like he was a preacher, he played the guitar. uh, He didn't, he he, he was clean living himself, but yet the LVF was intimately connected with crime and drug dealing.
1: Yeah and, and that LVF gang were probably responsible at that time. You know the the lack of um, drugs such as ecstasy were in their infancy in Northern Ireland and they were responsible for flooding the place. But yeah Billy Wright you know I suppose in the you know to, to steal a line from Scarface he did not get high on his own supply. You know he was not someone who indulged he was good living he was you know a Bible-biting loyalist. Um, but then people who were around him were clearly no such thing. You know, you had people like Swinger Fulton, people who had a reputation for living a very hedonistic party lifestyle, which was, inter, you know, intertwined with acts of violence. Sometimes the two things crossed over and we see, you know, cases where they weren't even planning shootings or killings, but have been, you know, on a binge for two or three days and then decided they wouldn't in the middle of it, you know. And, and those... Um, that type of lifestyle He did not seem to have any sort of discipline in terms of his members, but he was in terms of himself and and I think that he thought that he was, you know, this sort of like godly leader, you know, and that he had this righteous right to to behave in this this way. um and I've read sort of so many books and so many interviews with people who interviewed him, and came across him personally, and everyone says the same thing that he was, you know, incredibly polite um uh, while you were interviewing him. and that it, I suppose, the the person that lay beneath, although everyone said there was a coldness and a steeliness to him as well.
2: And I fell on my knees in the stores of my house and I apologised to God. But I told him that I couldn't have a lie, and I couldn't. I just couldn't bring myself to say words that I didn't mean, and pretend that I felt things I didn't feel. I felt contempt for the British Government, hatred for the IRA, and a longing for justice for the Northern Irish person.
0: In the next episode of The Bell Belltel, we look at Billy Wright's role in the LVF-UVF feud and how the INLA murdered him inside the Mays prison.
1: Wright had just gotten into the, the, the prison van, which was parked in the yard in between, when three INLA men... So they had a semi-automatic pistol and they had a Derringer as well, and he shouted, armed INLA volunteers, and then opened fire.
0: This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips were from the BBC, UTV, RTE, Sky, and the Ulydia Legacy Education Trust.
1: When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.